Welcome to A Smarter You, a University of Lynchburg podcast where ideas come together in new ways. I'm your host, Hannah Belliacci, and today we will be discussing a side of media that we always see but never recognize, the bane of President Trump's existence, fake news. We hear about it all the time, either on social media or from people we talk to surrounding political scandals. But what actually is it? To help us debunk this mystery, we are joined by two University of Lynchburg professors, journalism professor and faculty advisor for the school paper, Dr. Ghislaine Lewis. Hi, Hannah. And philosophy professor, Dr. Devin Brickhouse-Bryson. Hi, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we've heard the term a lot in recent years, especially among the Trump campaign. But Dr. Lewis, how do you define fake news? So fake news would be a story that's untrue. It's a story many times that's purposely made up. It's um, sometimes outright lies that are purposely spread across the spectrum. Sometimes it's just made up stuff because somebody thinks it's funny and then people start taking it seriously. What it's not is us criticizing somebody. What it's not is stories that defy what we think about ourselves or what we think about a particular topic, which I think is the term popularized by the president. Anything that's negative about him, then it must be fake news. So how can readers distinguish between real news sources and fake ones? Because some news websites like uh, The Onion are obviously satirical, but some people don't really, some people, like you said, take it for granted. So how do you tell the difference? Well, I think The Onion obviously advertises itself as a satire. I think it's very important for us to go check our sources. So when you when you look at a news site or The Onion site, it literally says in the description or in the subheading that it's a satirical site. I think it's always really important to go back to those about pages to make sure that the the sites that you're on are legitimate sites. You should have about pages, you should have descriptions about the journalists and what their um what their platforms are, the types of stories they cover, and that's how you know you're on a legitimate news website. So definitely look at the difference between the New York Times and the Onion. Look at the difference between the Washington Post and the Onion. Look at the difference between the school newspaper <laughs> and the Onion, right? We have an about page. You you can find a way to contact the journalists who are writing the stories, and I think that's always really important. So using the methods that you just put forth on how to distinguish um, real news sources and fake ones, uh, and Dr. Brickhouse Bryson, this, well, I'll open this question to you as well. Uh, do you think it's the responsibility of the consumer or the media to ensure the information that they're um, publishing or taking in is correct? It's got to be both, of course, I would think, but I'll let you jump in. I think, I think it's everybody's responsibility. I think as a good news organization, you always have to fact check your journalists. So not because a journalist comes to you with a story means that story is necessarily true, which is why we have massive editorial teams that go back and make sure that the sources you've said you've spoken to, you've actually spoken to. Now, as a good consumer, the first story that we read is not necessarily the best story to read or the best platform to get your information from. And so it's always important to double check, triple check, uh, look at a variety of sources on this one topic. I think it's it's very important for us to be an educated electorate. And the only way to educate yourself as an electorate is to read widely. So you mentioned that journalis journalists should also be fact-checking and making sure that the information that they're publishing is accurate. So what are the best practices that journalists use to, to fact-check and make sure that everything is all right? 
Yeah, I think that's a, a, an important point to emphasize that you know, no educated consumer of news should be relying on any one news source, even if it is the greatest news source in the world. Uh, relying on one one system of gathering the facts uh, is not going to be a recipe for, for having an accurate view of the world. So I think one of the basic things that that as a journalist you should be doing is make sure that you're talking to multiple sources. So not every source that you talk to is going to make your story. So our rule of thumb is that a good story should have at least three sources. At least two of those three sources should be human beings, which means that we're not just getting our sources based on what some mythical person said on the internet, right? At least two of those sources should be human beings. Now, just because you've spoken to three people or you've spoken to two humans doesn't mean that they've told you the entirety of that story. The only way to make sure that you're reaching saturation on all the ideas on a particular story is to talk to more than three people. So let's say we're, we're limited on time, but we're able to contact our three sources. You need to find two more people to make sure that what those three people told you is in the ballpark of what the story should be about. Because if we just rely on those three people, we might be missing uh, the integral part of the story. So to talk more about the creation of fake news and why it's a big part of uh, the explanation as to why supporters of political figures are quick to blame it, uh, as seen by Donald Trump in his campaign whenever so-called fake news does come up, uh, I'd like to ask Dr. Brickhouse Bryson on whether or not it could be a conspiracy theory, um, but just first to ensure clarity, what are conspiracy theories and uh, what precisely makes believing in one unjustified? Yeah, it's not that I think necessarily that we should think that fake news and conspiracy theories are, are the same exact thing, uh, but I do think it's instructive to think about conspiracy theories uh, and fake news alongside each other. Uh, I, my diagnosis is that they sort of have a similar root. Um, what is a conspiracy theory? Uh, maybe a rough and ready definition would be something like a, a theory of some phenomenon, a, a system of explaining some phenomenon, which relies on just increasingly complex, increasingly ad hoc hypotheses, you know, we're presented with some countervailing body of data, you know, I understand the world is this way, but here's a piece of data that seems to conflict with that. Well, rather than, you know, giving up my theory or amending my theory in some significant way, I, I accommodate that new data with this, you know, this ever-increasing strange uh, hypotheses uh, about how the world works. So, I mean, we're probably, many of us are familiar with the flat earth uh, conspiracy theory, uh, of course. Not, not something that uh, people have really believed in the past, but, but a, a conspiracy theory that is taking uh, hold these days among some quarters. Uh, it's not that they, they can't accommodate the data. Indeed, the, the sort of frustrating, uh, even more disturbing phenomenon is that they try to accommodate the data. So we're not going to solve that just by you know, giving them more pieces of, of data. We need to have a more fundamental conversation about the right ways to, to think about explaining the world. Uh, and, and the fundamental way to, to combat conspiracy theories, uh, it seems to me, is to prepare your own mind for the ability to, to question what you think. You know, it, rather than, than holding on to one's belief, beliefs in the face of uh, uh, contrary evidence, we need to all be prepared to confront the reality that you could be wrong. You know, if I, if I have this belief, this systematic explanation of the way the world is, but I get evidence that is in tension with that or pushes me or, or, or challenges me in some way, I need to be prepared to, to revise the way I understand the world. Uh, and conspiracy theories, by their very nature, uh, don't do that. Um, Fake news, I think, exhibits some similar properties. You know, we, we see, suppose you're entrenched in a particular political position, 
and you read a news story uh, that seems to present facts contrary to, to that position, rather than confronting the reality that you could be mistaken, that your entrenched political view could be misleading or incomplete or, or just false, uh, you, you accommodate the data by saying, well, no, that person is just biased and therefore everything they're saying is false. Or even worse, it's a grand conspiracy and, and they're plotting with the, you know, whoever to, to manufacture the story or just they're outright lying. I, I just don't believe them because, because they're outright lying. Uh, so it's this resistance uh, to to evidence that goes contrary to what you already believe that I think is a deep root of both conspiracy theory thinking uh, and the fake news phenomenon. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I understand in the sense where um, conspiracy theorists, like they have, they have the data, so to speak, um, to back up their claim. But for fake news, like people tend to take it. And I think what you're saying is that they don't, they don't have the idea that it could be wrong and they just sort of like take it to heart and they don't fact check. They don't take the yeah, journalistic yeah. measures that informed citizens should. Yeah. Take. Right. So if I encounter a news source that that's, you know, threatening my view in some way, I, I can just dismiss that that view as though I'm dismissing a new body of data. Um, but, but hold on to my theory of the world. Um, exactly. So we see this a lot. Um, I'm going to bring this up again, but um, with the president, when he talks about fake news, when it comes to um, Dr. Lewis, you mentioned earlier, whenever um, people, the media is criticizing his campaign, he calls it fake news. Uh, and people on both sides of the political aisle are, uh, see, they see the other side's media sources as untrustworthy. So what does this mean about the relationship between the press, politicians, and the public? I think it's a very fractured relationship right now. I think it's I think it's a fragile relationship, but I think it's a relationship that can be fixed, right? I think the journalists on their part, they see themselves going out and doing the best that they can possibly do given the climate, right? They're not able to report on some of the things happening as openly as they hope to be because so many people are afraid, right? The... Uh, Politicians, everybody seems to have coalesced around party ideology at the moment instead of what's in the best interest of the community, right? And as a public, I think we're tired. I think, I think we're extremely tired. There's so many conversations that start with, I don't know how you can inhale that much news because I am just avoiding anything newsy at the moment. Um, but I think we've got to realize that in order to be an active citizen and in order to participate in our democracy, we've got to be able to trust that the news that we're getting from whichever side we're getting it from is being done in our best interest, right? When journalists go out and they do all the hard work that they do, it's not because they want to do it. It's because they want to make sure that when people are asked to participate or they're asked to make decisions, that they're able to make those decisions to the best of their ability, right? And, and for politicians, they should want the same thing as well, right? They should want an electorate who's informed, who is uh, tuned in or plugged in and ready, ready to hold them accountable, right? We just can't, we just can't brush everything under the rug and, and hope for the best. That's not how we move forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the flip side of what I was saying before about conspiracy theories being a oh, and and this interpretation of fake news being a resistance to to sort of challenging data, the the other side of that coin would be that it's then incumbent upon us uh, to to seek to challenge our own beliefs, uh, incumbent upon us to to not get you know bogged down, not get tired uh, in the face of 
this phenomenon, but to but to seek to find the truth, to to seek to check uh, that our beliefs are as true as possible. Uh, so, so that means uh, that has a positive and a sort of negative uh, implication that we we have to you know try and read as much news as we can. I think try and get uh, be as informed as possible, but also reflect on our own uh, biases, our own you know things that we may be overlooking. Um, challenge our own belief systems uh, as much as possible. I don't think we should be be too high horsey about it and say, well, you know, those conspiracy people, they don't challenge their beliefs. Well, I mean, if 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 the lesson of conspiracy theories and fake news is that we must all work to ensure that our beliefs are as accurate as possible and that that can be very difficult to do, uh, then it's incumbent upon us to to take that work seriously and think about the justification for our beliefs. You know, we all have beliefs about the way the world is, uh, beliefs about science, beliefs about what politically should be the case, uh, that is, beliefs about justice or something like that. Um, we all must, are, it's incumbent upon us to, to, to check those beliefs, uh, to, to seek out uh, what our justification for those beliefs is. I agree, and I feel like nowadays with such polarized ideologies when it comes to the political spectrum, um, can like supporters of the, either the Republican or the Democratic Party, if their favored candidate is attacked, they're so right. quick to villainize the media right. and they don't take that extra measure to make sure like, wait, let me go check for the facts. Right. Let me make sure that what I'm being told is the full story. Right. And I feel like part of that is just their bias that their party is right, what you were right. mentioning earlier. Um, but have we seen similar moments before in either in the United States or elsewhere, when politicians saw the press as adversaries and public trust in both eroded? That's obviously a question mainly for the historians. Uh, we, we'd, have to, we'd have to ask them principally, I think. Um, uh, I mean, Nixon, of course, was notoriously, uh, had, a, had a notoriously contentious relationship with the press. So, so I don't think this, it's, it's completely alien. Uh, my amateur historian's uh, view, and I'll stress that, that I'm not, a, you know, we should ask the historians, um, uh, but my amateur's view is that it does seem to be worse in a certain sense. Uh, although, again, it's worth reflecting that, you know, we've had contentious relationships with the press forever. Um, so, I think you've got to remember that the mandate of journalism is to hold people in power accountable, right? And to give voice to the voiceless. And when you're, when you're trying to hold people accountable, there's always going to be some level of tension. Obviously... In my young lifetime, we've been seeing tension to this level here in the States uh, outside of Nixon. But I think when you look at lots of other countries around the world where there isn't as much press freedom as outlined in the Constitution, then you find that there's always uh, a lot of tension between the media and, and those in power. But in those cases, people get thrown in jail, right? We're not at, we're, hopefully we never get to that level to that level here. I think the erosion that we're, we're seeing is, is a little disheartening, especially if you're somebody who believes in the Constitution and you believe in the role of the press and you believe in the separation of powers, then um, it can be uncomfortable. But I think there are lots of ways for us to come back from this. So, Dr. Brickhouse Bryson, uh, you mentioned how um, whenever people consume media, so to speak, and it is fake news, pe they just take that belief to heart. Um, but how would a philosopher uh, such as yourself recommend that we examine and challenge our beliefs uh, and the media that we consume? I, I was using the language before, and the, the, this is slightly technical language from philosophy, but it's perfectly um, an, an ordinary idea. I, I said we should check to make sure that our beliefs are justified. Uh, this is a basic notion in, in epistemology, which is uh, the study of what knowledge is. 
We want to make sure our beliefs are justified, which means that they have the right kinds of evidence, the right kinds of support. Of course, there's some, some question in philosophy about what exactly does make a, a belief justified. Uh, but we know that, you know, at least rough and ready, uh, that a belief is justified to the degree that evidence supports it. A belief is justified to the degree that it fits within a theory that, that explains the data well without recourse to, you know, too many ad hoc hypotheses and so on. Uh, a belief is justified uh, if you don't have an expertise in the subject uh, and, and an expert who does uh, tells you, you know, I've studied this. Uh, and and this is the way it is. Uh, for instance, we we have beliefs about history. We have beliefs about science. But of course, we can't all be historians. We can't all be scientists. Um, we can't all develop the specialization uh, to get advanced knowledge in those fields. So at a certain point, uh, it's just a fact of of human knowledge, a fact of justification that we have do have to rely on experts. Uh, and and this is, I think, maybe another route that you know there's there's other sort of sociological uh, pressure that, you know, some people have a, an, an adverse view of experts. Uh, but when you reflect on, uh, on the necessity of expertise for the building of knowledge, you know, no one of us, uh, we're, we're finite creatures, no one of us can build uh, uh, the knowledge that we together can build. Together as a, as a, as a species, we, of course, uh, have built a staggering body of knowledge about the world. Um, but that's some, only something we can do collectively. So it's just a basic feature uh, of of the justification of our beliefs, that we have to rely on other people's knowledge in the formation of our own beliefs. And that's kind of scary. Like, who, who, count, who counts as the expert? Uh, can, obviously, experts can be wrong. It's not like experts have magic powers to, to always have correct beliefs. They, too, can be wrong. So if the scientists tell us, you know, black holes behave thusly, uh, but they turn out to be wrong, well... Our beliefs about the way black holes work, they, they may have been justified but, but because they, the scientists told us so, but, you know, if it turns out it's wrong. So, in other words, there's always a danger that even if our beliefs are justified, they could, they could still be wrong. So we, must con we have to be constantly sort of checking and rechecking, uh, asking the experts, okay, now what's your best uh, understanding of the world? What's your best understanding of the history? What's your best understanding of the climate? What's your best understanding of, you know, pick your phenomenon uh, and, and we'll have to be paying attention if we want to have justified, accurate beliefs about the world as much as possible. Uh, we'll have to be paying attention to, to what the experts are saying. Um, and I don't mean experts in, in any, any kind of, you know, just people who care about an issue and, and devote their time and energy to, to, and their expertise to, to thinking about an issue. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. That makes sense completely because that's part of the reason why ex when experimentations like occur, yeah. like they get done over the years right, to make right. sure that the they're Checking still ex ex exactly just to make sure that what they have is right so that they can move forward if they want to add on to the experiment. Um, like there was an experiment with uh, with essentially just to see how drugs affect the body and everything. Um, and there was a rat placed in an empty cage with uh, drugged water and just regular water. And he almost nine times out of 10 preferred the drugged water. But um, later on, when the experiment was revisited, they realized that the rat was just by himself in that park. And so they essentially built a rat park, like rat heaven, so to speak. So there were other rats in the park with, with him, uh, tubes, and just sort of like abundance of food and everything. And in that park, the rat always preferred the regular water. Like the drugged water wasn't as appealing anymore. So I feel like it is important to go back and make sure that Exactly, because Refine something can always and, yeah, be missing, picture, and I feel like yeah, that's part yeah. of what Dr. Lewis is trying to make with journalists uh, checking their sources, making sure 
that they've gotten every piece of the story to make sure that the media is informed as possible. Um, so now I'd like to talk about a little bit about the perception gap because what I feel like part of the divide between fake news and um, politicians, the press, and that whole relationship deals with it. So according to the Huffington Post, uh, a perception gap occurs when the intention set forth uh, is and communicated is misunderstood by your audience. So in a study conducted by More in Common on the perception gap, it was found that consumption of most, most forms of media, including talk radio, newspapers, social media, and local news, uh, is associated with a wider perception gap. So um, if you do listen to, essentially, if you listen to more radio, you read more newspapers, you you become more polarized in your beliefs. Well, I'll always I'll, I'll have the cliche cautionary note that, the, of course, uh, correlations are not the same as causation. Uh, I, that, I did find that story interesting. It wasn't completely clear to me that uh, that that there was we had necessarily established a causal relationship between. Uh, I mean, I, I'm no expert, of course, so we, we should look at the studies more carefully. Um, but it wasn't just it wasn't immediately clear to me that the studies were sufficient to establish uh, that there was a causal relationship between consuming more news and a, and a widening perception gap. So that's just one note of caution. But. I think I think it you can be reading more news, but are you reading more of the same news, right? Am I diversifying the types of news or the types of talk radio or the types of things that I'm inhaling on social media, right? Or am I just using things that support mm -hmm. my bias, right? Um, I think when, when you think about it, people want to feel that their beliefs are validated. And so, yes, if I'm liberal, I'm going to meet, read more liberal news. But it, as an informed person in the electorate, it's important to know how everybody's thinking and not just how how you feel, right? Because yes, Tom, Dick, and Harry might validate you, but there's Susan and Gary over here whose ideas are equally as valid, right? And so it helps for us to understand the the entire the entire pie and not not to just focus on the things that validate or or ideas. Um I think I looked at the study and I was slightly confused, <laughs> honestly. I think we'd have to go back and look at the methods yeah. of the study before we can say whether we agree or, yeah. or disagree with how they came up with the um with how they came up with their conclusions. I agree because there's another finding listed right under there that says that college education results in a distorted view of Republicans among the liberals. And as a college student, I found that surprising because the whole point of, I feel like, public education, just education in general, is to help the individual gain the ability to form their own opinions. It doesn't say whether it was the, like, college was the cause, as you mentioned, that precautionary warning, um, but as someone as a college student, it's just very concerning that, like, what is going on on campus or how are the ideas mixing in a way where Republicans are just have such a negative reputation. So how do you feel like the purpose of education um, plays a role in forming the ideologies of young student of young voters? Well, there's a principle in philosophy uh, called the, the, the principle of charity. Uh, this is an important um, um principle that you learn as you're, you're trying to think through uh, difficult texts about, you know, fundamental questions. Uh, the principle of charity being 
that in order to, to engage with some position, in order to, to understand an opposing viewpoint, you first must do everything that you can uh, to, to reconstruct uh, your opponent's position, uh, understand the ins and outs completely of your opponent's position, maybe even try to improve on your opponent's position. You know, If you see some kind of weakness in your opponent's position, maybe see if you can patch it uh, with, while maintaining the spirit of your opponent's position or whatever. Um, even build up uh, your opponent's position. And all, then and only then can you proceed to think, now, what are my criticisms? What are, what are the problems that I see with this view such that I think my view um, is superior? Uh, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're comparing two views about morality. You think this is morally required, the other person thinks the other, it's not, or whatever. Um, the first step is to, to reconstruct uh, their view as carefully, uh, as charitably as possible, uh, with as much kindness as possible, and then you can proceed uh, to the criticism. And of course, the criticism is an important stage. You know, we're, 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 you know, is this political view the right way to understand things, or is that political view? That's an important question. Like, we're trying to figure out how we should vote, what we should do, what is justice? So we're not just like, you know, you know, thinking about each other's views um, and, and going nowhere. We want to figure out what, what, what way we should go, what's justice, or whatever our question is. So we must get to the criticism stage. We, we're going to have disputes, and we're going to have to exchange arguments about what is and isn't the right way to understand the world. But before you can do that, before you can really uh, engage with a position, you have to be sure, double sure, that you uh, fully understand uh, and charitably can reconstruct uh, the opposing position. Because if you don't, there's a, a great danger of just ships passing in the night. If I think that you believe X, uh, but, but X is just some sort of warped, crazy view of what you actually think, you know, that you don't really think X, and then I attack, attack, attack X, um, well, I haven't done anything. Uh, you don't believe X. You believe some more sophisticated version that I was missing, I didn't understand. Uh, so I have to be sure that I understand your view fully before I can make critical contact with it. And it seems to me that uh, the perception gap is just an instance of sort of uncharitable thinking uh, writ large that, um, that we assume that our, our political or our intellectual or, or, or otherwise opponents, we assume that our opponents have these simple, uh, childish, uh, absurd, or even repugnant uh, views and attack those things. Well, it's easy to attack repugnant views. That's not the point. You have to be sure you understand what their view is, and then you can not attack but, but reasonably criticize. Um, if you don't understand their view, you can't even get into the space of, of reasonably criticizing it. You're just doing, uh, this is the fallacy of the straw man. You're just setting up a straw man, a little, a little straw scarecrow, and pushing it over and saying that, that you've won. Uh, when, when you really need to you know, set your opponent up as a fully you know, reasonable person, um, or at least try to imagine that they're a fully reasonable person, and then see uh, if your position can, beat, uh, can, can critically uh, overcome theirs, uh, reasonably overcome theirs. So it seems to me like a basic lesson, uh, a basic tenet of, of be becoming an educated person is just training yourself uh, to think in that way, training yourself to understand that the world is complicated and, and that there are other views other than your own uh, and that your views can be challenged, uh, but that as part of, part of trying to work through it, uh, you have to try to understand other potential views uh, on the subject, understand them as carefully as possible, and then see uh, what, what the light of reason shows about whether your view or their view is superior. Um, does that make sense? No, oh, that completely makes sense. I feel like that ties back to 
uh, Dr. Lewis about what she was mentioning when how people are listening to the same yeah, news sources yeah. and that they really have a responsibility as a member of the electorate um, to inform themselves on all points of view. What might a reasonable person on the other side, a reasonable person uh, on the other side think and how might I respond to that person? Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Lewis, uh, what should future journalists uh, think about relating uh, to the issue of fake news? Because kids in school nowadays, so what what should they think about in related to the issue of fake news in the sense of um, how can they avoid avoid writing it in the sense because sometimes it just sort of happens like they don't have all the facts or there there will be like a, a little bit of bias in there like just starting out. Um, how can they prevent their own political bias if they are writing for one of those polarized media sources um, from presenting all the facts to their readers? Well, I am a big proponent of third-person objective. We are going to try to keep ourselves out of the news as much as possible because it's got nothing to do with you, right? We're trying to tell other people's stories. And so since you're telling other people's stories, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be a part of it. How I feel should not come into the way I cover something, regardless of if I work for a polarized, a polarized network or not. Right. Because your job as a journalist is to go out and to the best of your ability, get the facts. And on paper, all we're doing is writing those facts out, facts down and then disseminating them to the public. And then the public gets a chance to make a decision. Right. We're not talking heads. This is not we a good journalist is not what you see on, on TV every night, except if you're watching local news. Right. Um, many of the, the national networks, what they are talking heads. A lot of these people never went to journalism school. Right. People just like to talk <laughs> and they are people who like to listen to them. Right. A good journalist is going out there. They're getting the facts and then they're presenting those facts, those facts to their audience. And then the audience gets to decide. I should not be deciding for my audience. And I think that's part of the problem. So if that's the case, how can people protect themselves from falling into the sort of percep perception gap um, if like those talking heads present? And how can the media do a better job of uh, playing a role of pr protecting that perception gap from happening? Well, I think what we've got to remember is that the foundation of all great news coverage comes from print, right? We're so focused on what's happening online. But the talking heads, the people online, a lot of those people form their opinions and disseminate those opinions based on what's happening in print, where all the real journalists work, right? <laughs> um, and so I think it's important for us to not only think about what we're getting online, but to actually sometimes from time to time, pick up a physical paper, pick up your local paper, pick up a copy of whatever your favorite paper is. The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, which is a great paper, right? Uh, pick up a physical copy of a magazine, Time Magazine, Newsweek, uh, The New Yorker, right? Pick up one of those things and read the work of some of the great journalists out there. I think it's, it's always important for us to make sure that we're inhaling both sides of the argument, that we're just not playing into our confirmation biases. I think it's also important to remember that there are a whole host of people out there whose daily job it is or whose mission it is, who have this great idealized view that the work that they're doing is going to make a difference, right? We're holding people accountable and we're giving voice to the voiceless. And I think sometimes we have to trust them, right? We have to be able to disseminate between fake news and real news.
Um, I think it's important that we keep ourselves as informed as possible. And if we, if we think that we're keeping ourselves as informed as possible, then we shouldn't be falling into the perception gap and we should be able to go out and make good informed choices. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Dr. Lewis, Dr. Brickhouse Bryson, uh, thank you for joining in the discussion. Uh, And to all our listeners, we're glad you came. Is there a Lynchburg professor or alum you'd like to hear on the podcast this season or a topic you'd like us to tackle? Email ucm at lynchburg.edu to let us know. Until next time. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great discussion. <laughs> You're welcome, Hannah. Study for my quiz. Will do. <laughs> the country and the media have been divided by the impeachment proceedings investigating President Donald Trump. In our next episode, a historian will join us to talk about Andrew Johnson, the first president who was ever impeached, and how this controversial president divided America while it was trying to reunite.